The morning of March 30th, 1981, Hollywood woke up ready to recognize the best in the previous year of film. But less than six hours before the 53rd Annual Academy Awards were scheduled to start, one movie fan ruined the night. That afternoon, across the country, John Hinckley Jr. fired six shots at President Ronald Reagan, hitting him and three others in an attempt to impress Jodie Foster, whom Hinckley had become obsessed with after seeing the 1976 film Taxi Driver. The Academy Awards, in which the creative team behind Taxi Driver happened to be nominated again, immediately postponed the ceremony. Luckily, Hinckley was as good a shot as he was at romantic gestures, and with no immediate casualties and the president in stable condition, the Oscars reconvened the next night. I'm your host, Devin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kyle. Hello. Now, the Academy Awards ostensibly are meant to pick the best picture of the year and best actor-actress of that given year. But there's also the, the common theory that it can take up to 10 years to really know what film stands out as the best from any given year. So with that in mind, we've decided to start this podcast and re-examine Oscar ceremonies from at least 10 years ago and kind of suss out... Which was the correct choice. Yeah, see if uh, if any of them didn't really stand past that given year. Mm-hmm. We don't really remember them. We don't consider them uh, essential to film history besides possibly their best picture win. Right, right. If they're still culturally relevant, relevant or if they're, you know, you know, some years just aren't that good for him. That's true. So this year, for our first episode, we are going to be looking at the 53rd Academy Awards, which were presented in 1981 and honored the films from 1980. So to give you a little context about 1980, for those of you who don't remember, and people like us who may not have been alive then. (laughs) um, So 1980, take yourselves back. Uh, Jimmy Carter was the president, but not for long because there was a presidential election that year in which he lost to Ronald Reagan. Uh, The Cold War was still ongoing. Uh, We were nearing the end of the energy crisis. um, And we were in the midst of the Iran hostage crisis. A lot going on. There was a lot. There was a lot. Um, In January, we entered a minor recession. This is just U.S., by the way. But we entered a minor recession spawned from the oil crisis. You couldn't cover the entire year for the world? Well, you know. In your research? Do we cover the old movies of the world? This is about Americans. And we give them a category. We're not talking about that category, <laughs> though. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, in April, we, U.S. severed diplomatic relations with Iran following the hostage incident of 1979. In June of 1980, CNN launched for the first time. CNN wasn't a thing before now. For sure. Tw- first 24-hour news cycle, right? So we didn't understand how terrible that was going to turn out yet. <laughs> Everyone was excited about it. Um, in July, unemployment peaked at 7.8%, which was the highest it had been in four years. Um, that November, like I said, Ronald Reagan won the presidential race. November 21st, millions of viewers tuned in to find out who shot JR. Ooh. It was Kristen. Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert for uh, You know, we might as well just get it out of the way because <laughs> there's going to be spoilers for everything we talk about. So. Yes. If you're That's not fine. caught up with 1980 films, maybe. Yeah. Well, we're not going to talk about Game of Thrones on this podcast, but we're going to talk about <laughs> uh, movies that you should have seen by now if you were interested at all. Yes. Or not. I shouldn't say should have seen. 
We're also going to tell you but who like, shot JR. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, come on. We're giving you at least a 10-year buffer. So if you haven't seen these movies, yes. uh, you know, spoilers await. Yes. Um, in 1980, December 8th of 1980, John Lennon was shot and killed by Mark David Chapman in front of the Dakota. So assassinations were still just like kind of a thing then. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean. Because then Reagan was almost killed the day before the Oscars. That was a crazy year for uh, for assassination attempts. And yeah. Well, they hadn't, su- successes, I guess. They but. hadn't figured out security so much yet. Sure. Uh, so that's pretty much it. Okay. So that's our year. 1980 and the year the following films were released yes so this is the 1980 in movies this is just some some highlights from that year okay on may 21st the empire strikes back was released and it was the biggest grocer of the year just as its predecessor star wars was three years prior excellent may 23rd the shining was released notable notable for being the first epic horror film wait so pop culturally this is the year we found out Darth Vader was Luke's father. Yeah, that's true. It's a big deal. I mean, mm-hmm. Lennon is one thing, but also. Yeah, that's like a, that, yeah. It's really, um, Chuck Klosterman in his book, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, has an essay about why Gen X, kid, like, people were more depressed than others or whatever. They had, like, a more, like, a darker look at things. And his, like, he says it goes back to Empire Strikes Back because that's such a downer of an ending. He's saying that like kids who saw that when they were just kids and like didn't realize there was going to be like a happy ending later were just like, oh, things end badly, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. Yeah, that is. Um, June 20th, The Blues Brothers was released. And in addition to becoming one of the top grossing films of the year, it also became the first feature film to be based on characters created on Saturday Night Live. Excellent. And on November, also probably one of the best movies featuring characters created on SNL. Yeah, it was really a highlight for that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think they had a good stretch in the eighties. Did they? I don't. Well, like Wayne's World, that yeah. did well. Was that eighties? Well, I guess it was nineties. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean. That's okay. It's all the same thing. Uh, November nineteenth, Heaven's Gate became became one of the biggest box office bombs of all time, and its colossal failure bankrupted United Artists. That was a movie that came out in eighty. Mm-hmm. I really wish we would have watched that in preparation for this podcast. It's supposed to be not that bad as yeah. people thought it I'll was. Just then. Have to look at it again. I know Soderbergh did a recut of it too, which I think is interesting. Um, yeah. I really hoped it had something to do with the cult Heaven's Gate, but apparently <laughs> it didn't. So then I was like, oh, less uh, interested. <laughs> okay. Um, here's some the highest grossing films of 1980. Number number one, like I said, was Empire Strikes Back. Uh, number two, nine to five. Three was Stir Crazy, four Airplane, five Any Which Way You Can, six Private Benjamin. Oh yeah. Number seven Coal Miner's Daughter, eight Smoking the Bandit Two. I didn't even know there was a second one, honestly. <laughs> um, number nine was The Blue Lagoon, and number ten was The Blues Brothers. So one of the nominees for Best Picture yep. was on the highest grossing. Yep, only one. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, let's be honest. That tends to be how it turns out. That is. Um, here's some people that you may have heard of that made their film debuts in 1980. It's prior to this. We didn't even know who these people were. Maybe. They might have been done television. Um, it says Drew Barrymore, John Cusack, Willem Dafoe, Tom Hanks, William Hurt, Jeremy Irons, William H. Macy, Cynthia Nixon, Sharon Stone, Robin Williams, Bruce Willis, John Totoro and Timothy Hutton. Wow, a lot of people still very relevant to this day. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't name the people that aren't. <laughs> well, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I mean, you did say uh, 
Cynthia Nixon. So Cynthia, I like and Cynthia Sharon, Nixon and Sharon Stone. People you've heard of, though. Uh, yeah, I know what people have heard of, but I'm but saying those are like they were like big stars for. I think Cynthia Nixon's a big star. She's on one of the like most popular television shows of all time. Oh, she was on one of the most popular television shows of all time. People don't forget who you are the second <laughs> a television I show know, ends. I, know, I, know. I just meant like there's still people that's literally making good work to this day. Yes. Um, and Timothy Hutton, who made his film debut and then uh, won an Oscar. That's true. For Ordinary People. And speaking of Timothy Hutton, uh, here's some fun facts from the Oscars of 1981. All of the winners in the acting categories were under the age of 40. Okay. Timothy Hutton was only 20, which made him the youngest oh, wow. supporting Oscar, uh, supporting Oscar, supporting actor Oscar winner. That's Jeez. hard to say. Okay. <laughs> Mouthful. <laughs> you know, I'm actually surprised because like, uh, I didn't realize he was so young. I actually thought he, sometimes he looked like 35 in that movie and sometimes he looked 16. So it's like, yeah. I thought he might've been somewhere in the middle there, but 20. Wow. Yeah. So he's probably like younger when they filmed it too. Yeah. Um, the lack of recognition for Christopher Tucker's makeup work in The Elephant Man prompted the creation of the Academy Award for Best Makeup and Hairstyling the following year. Hmm. Which I think is interesting that they never had that category yeah. before this. I guess they used to give out, like, a, they would have, like, honorary awards. They were just like, oh, we give you an award for this. But, like, there wasn't, like, it wasn't, like, a competition award. Gotcha. Okay. Which then it also seems crazy that they didn't give it to him, though. You know, like, that makeup work for Elephant Man is pretty impressive. Oh, they didn't give it to him? No. That's why there was outrage. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Oh, so that was the year that was the turning point. It's like, oh, next year we should really yeah. include. So then they created that category gotcha. for the next okay. year. Okay. Um, the Best Supporting Actress nominee, Ava Ligillian, for Resurrection, was born in 1899, which made her the last acting nominee to be born in the 19th century. Hmm. And as of 2017, this is the earliest Oscars for which all five directing nominees are still living. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, for as, long, as far as nominees go, these films had the most nominations. Um, Elephant Man and Raging Bull had the most with eight nominations each. Okay. Coal Miner's Daughter had seven. Um, Fame, Ordinary People, and Tess each had six. And then uh, Empire Strikes Back, Melvin and Howard, Private Benjamin, and The Stuntman all had three. And Altered States, The Competition, The Great Santini, and Cage Musha and Resurrection all had two each. Okay. So those are my fun facts oh. about the Oscars. Excellent. Did any like did anything crazy happen at the ceremony or anything? Not really. I feel like it was probably a very weird atmosphere in there, considering like the day before the president had <laughs> been shot. True, that's true, yeah. <laughs> so no, they decided to not have many antics. Right. Well, because um, Robert De Niro, you know, won for Raging Bull. He won Best Actor. And it's so strange that this guy, like the day before this man who was like emulating your character and taxi driver tried to kill the president. And now you're like up there accepting an award. Like, he's that good. He said it was deeply disturbed. I bet. (laughs) Who hosted that year? Do you know? Uh, Jimmy. No, Johnny Carson. Sorry. Johnny Carson. Okay. So, yeah. Do you want to get into the Best Picture nominees? Let's do it. Okay. So the first nominee for Best Picture was Tess, directed by Roman Polanski. Brief synopsis. Um, a strong-willed young peasant girl becomes the affection of two men. Um, that's the shortest synopsis for the <laughs> longest movie, and it barely describes what that movie's about. <laughs> I like that. Where'd you find that? IMDb. That? <laughs> that's the IMDb. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Um, but it was an adaptation of the Thomas Hardy's 19, 1891 novel, Tess of the Dubervilles. Excellent. Um, so, yeah, you want to talk about Tess? 
Oh, that's that's all the the lead we want to give for that. Well, I can just so Roman Polanski um says that he was inspired to make the film by his wife Sharon Tate, who gave him a copy of Tess of the Dubervilles. Um, she said it would make a great film, and she expressed interest in playing the part of Tess. He says he last time he saw her is when she gave him that book, and he was leaving for London. And of course, while he was in London, she was uh, brutally murdered by the Manson family while she's pregnant. And the film is dedicated to her. Yeah. Which I have some problems with. Do you? <laughs> Let What's me just, I'm going to, this is the first episode and I'm going to have to make this proclamation. And unfortunately it's going to come up time and again, <laughs> but, um, I don't support rapists. I have a real problem with Roman Polanski still being accepted by Hollywood, still being like awarded Adored. by Hollywood. Adored by Hollywood. Um, and like to put this in perspective, um, if people don't know, I don't know if people don't know, but Roman Polanski pled guilty to drugging and raping a 13 year old in 1977. So that is only three years before this movie came out. Yeah. yeah. That's a short, short time for them to all just forgive him. And then he fled the country. Like he can't come back to America. He still can't. Yeah. Um, there's some fascinating documentaries out there too, if you guys are interested in the subject. Yeah. Which take kind of cover both sides of the. Of the situation. Of the rape of the 13-year-old? Yeah. I mean, yes. Yeah, he did. He raped her. He pled guilty to it. It's not like he's saying, oh, that didn't happen. I know. He pled guilty under the circumstances. What circumstances? And served his time. He served some of his time. He didn't serve all of it. He was released. Well, he was supposed to... They were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Actually, you know what? The sentence should be harsher. No, he just served the part like he, you know, like when you're in jail, you get arrested. And then like before he tried to like serve yeah. time, he served that point. And then he was supposed to go back and serve the rest of what he was sentenced to. But then he found out the judge wanted to lengthen, to the, lengthen sentence. the sentence. Yeah. So he fled the country, okay. which is also illegal, which is why he would still be arrested if he came back. <laughs> yes, <now. laughs> yes, yes. France is currently harboring. Or is he in France still? Yeah, he's in France because he has dual citizenship, I believe. Uh, so yeah. he can stay there without gotcha. being extradited. Because then that whole situation when he, tra- when he went to Switzerland. Yeah, like the, not that long ago, like a couple years ago, he went to Switzerland and America was like, oh, hey, will you extradite him? Yeah. And then Switzerland was like, yeah, we're neutral. I don't know if you know that about us, but I we're like, not like, getting involved in they anything. They considered it for a minute, I believe. Cause they that's did, where, That's yeah. where like the actual news story was. It wasn't just like. They were holding him. Yeah, they yeah. were considering doing it, but they didn't. But they're like, yeah, we really like Tess. They were like, oh, she was just, she was 13. That's not so bad. You can stay. But then, yeah, so then Tess features a rape scene. Well, the entire plot of Tess is how when she was a teenager, she was raped, and that ruins her entire life. Yeah. So that's the movie that he made three years after (laughs) and then dedicated to his dead wife. Like, you understand the sentiment a little bit, but damn. And here's my thing. Here's my thing. Maybe... That story about Sharon Tate is true. Like, maybe she did read that book and give it to him. I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm just saying it seems highly convenient to me <laughs> that he has all this bad press about raping a 13-year-old. And then he's like, oh, hey, guys, remember how my wife was murdered? Like, I just feel like it's like trying to gain some sympathy. Yeah. Like, yeah, we know. Yeah. It was terrible. You were terrible, though, also. So, like... I'm really surprised we just accepted him so soon. Is the, it's like, so like, soon like, afterwards. Like when, the, when, when the pianist comes out like years later. I mean, he got other award nominations. He got a but that standing was, ovation when he won that. Yeah. See, so it's like, I don't know. I'm not That's saying a- time heals all wounds, <laughs> but that was at least more time than three years. Yeah, three years is a quick turnaround to yeah, be like. For, <laughs> yeah. But I do think back. And also, like, I'm sorry. Can we just talk about the movie for a second? Cause, sure, like, probably. It's not that good, uh, in my opinion. <laughs> 
Um, it's I really, a- <laughs> it's visually, it's beautiful. It like is I, beautiful. I will say that, but honestly, I got nothing out of this movie. And for, I shouldn't say nothing, but for a three hour runtime, it really, it really feel, feels like it. And to me, that's the sign of you know a poorly paced movie. And if, if a movie is poorly paced, I don't consider it a best picture nominee for the year. Right. I wouldn't put it on a top 10 list and I don't know. It's just like you really felt the length of this movie. I understand that it's based on a novel and maybe it's a good adaptation. Maybe it's not. But uh, it really it really just it didn't do much for me. Tess. I would agree. I do think there was major issues with the pacing, which I think can happen because I'm assuming that the book obviously is like very dense. Mm -hmm. And so trying to like get through all of that, it really felt like some things were rushed. But then it also felt like and I researching it it seems like that's how it was written but it seems like a lot of the most interesting things that happen in that movie aren't shown like i think it's much it's interesting to think about why she would agree to become alex's mistress after he had raped her and like ruined and all that stuff but then she agrees to do it anyway and then when she kills him like i just think that that's the most interesting thing that happens in that movie and you don't see it happen knowing polanski's work it's like oh it ends that way okay so that's why pull it like before I knew his dedicate, you know, the whole story mm-hmm. you know, with his wife. It's like, oh, that's what Polanski saw interesting about this whole thing. But then it's just the other two hours and 40 minutes were just. Yeah. And the like, thing- it wasn't good enough lead up to it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, it, this is a great, um, you know, again, I can't test a test for the book. But it essentially becomes a revenge movie in a way, and but they don't really like explore that way. it's a revenge. No, movie I know. Very I was well. not a, it, the pacing is all over the place. It's not. It doesn't even feel gr- like gratifying at that point. If anything, I was just glad when I saw that blood that I knew we were probably getting close to the end of the movie at that yeah. point. <laughs> um, but I mean, it was a cool scene. I liked how it was done. I liked that it wasn't shown. I like. I like. Yeah, I liked the, the way it was the like spooky. The really spooky, kind of creepy mm-hmm. blood pouring through the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, which felt refreshing yet out of place for the rest of this movie, right? Um, and I will say too, you know, we're kind of looking at these movies and how they hold up, and I think that this movie might not hold up the worst. I don't, you know what I'm trying what? to say? It's no, the worst at holding up. It's the least held up one. But I don't know how much of that is like because it's from 1980 or because it's based on something from like 1890. Yeah, that's a really hard way to judge that being a, a you know being a period piece in itself. And the fact that it's based on because you can have period pieces and then kind of like update them to more um, modern sensibilities, but because it's based on this book, like sh- people make decisions that just don't read. I think today, like yeah. it just, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. Um, I do agree, and I think it, it came from a very foreign sensibility too. Yeah, as opposed, uh, but uh, regardless, as far as holding up. I don't think Tess needs to be included in many conversations. Yeah, I don't think people need to watch it. I don't yeah, think I think it can stand as a visual reference, but I mean, most of Polanski's work can. Um, but yeah, like to be, I mean, I'll be honest with like I had never heard of it until this list. Really, Me either. Or it, or it passed over, or I thought it was they were talking about Kess. Like I don't know, but uh, yeah, I I'm not better for knowing that this movie exists or having seen it. Um, but yeah, did I just say, say seen it? Yeah, a little sure bit. Did. A little Didn't bit. Mean that. I'm sorry. Um, um <laughs> moving on. What unless you want to uh, Well, the only thing I do have Tess. um just like some other <clears throat> how other people feel about it. On Rotten Tomatoes it has an audience score of 78%. Interesting, so. okay. Not bad. Um The American Film Institute which um ranks a lot of like great movies on different 
they have a different list and they do a lot of stuff. But um, Tess is not ranked on any of their lists. Okay. Um, box office wise, they made um, twenty point one million dollars, which is about sixty million dollars in the U.S. Um, I, I don't, I don't okay. know if this is U.S. or if it's okay. national or international. Yeah. Um, but it was the thirty third highest grossing film of nineteen eighty in the U.S. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's not terrible. No, I mean. That's more people than I would think would want to see this. I wonder, you know, I wonder, too, if a lot of it plays into, like, obviously, the the most recent we've seen from Polanski before that was his trial. So, it's like, <laughs> um, you know what I mean, though? Yeah. I wonder if, like, that was a part of it. It's just like, oh, wow, you know, this guy were, that was on all this scandal. Let's check out his most recent picture or, mm-hmm. or just, like, film aficionados in the first place. Because I just can't see how the general public would just rush out to that movie. Right, unless, I mean, I don't know much about the book, Test of the Dubervilles. Um, I mean, obviously, it's like a cl- I'm sure they teach it, like, in schools or something. All I know about it is that um, in Fifty Shades of Grey, Christian Grey gives it to Oh, yeah, Anastasia, that's, a, that's an interesting, so. <laughs> yeah, kind of parallel here. I mean, he, like, gives it to her and is, like, it's not like he's, like, oh, I'm Angel in this and you're Tess. He's, like, you're Tess and I'm the guy that raped her. <laughs> Isn't that romantic? Like, and that's, yeah. like, the ninth creepiest thing that he does to her in the book. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, I, I do find that interesting, though, that, the interesting connection there. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that could be explored further, but to waste what more blood James talking isn't the about person Tess to do it. Would, would get to me. Yeah. Next nominee is The Elephant Man, directed by David Lynch. Wait, can we start over one second? I'm sure. sorry. This is just another good breaking point. Um, you are saying like a lot. Oh, okay. Sorry. And I ju- yeah, I just want to point it out to you. I don't, you know. No, yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. And try to avoid ums, too. But I know it's because you're reading. Yeah, I know. Sorry. I know. No, it's okay. Okay. You ready? Yes. So the next nominee is The Elephant Man, directed by David Lynch. Um, the synopsis. A Victorian surgeon rescues a heavily disfigured man who is mistreated while scraping a living as a sideshow freak. Behind his monstrous facade, there is revealed a person of intelligence and sensitivity. Um, it was produced by Jonathan Sanger and Mel Brooks, the latter of whom was intentionally left uncredited to avoid confusion from audience who possibly would have expected a comedy. <laughs> I think that's funny. Um, it's highly regarded today and stands at number 539 on a tabulation of the world's most acclaimed movies. Number 539? 539. I don't know how high that list goes. What? but well, still, I feel like that's not very high. <laughs> well, think of all the movies that have ever come out. I don't out. care. Like, what? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Well, just letting you know the facts. Um, it w- did win the BAFTA Award for Best Film as well as BAFTA Awards for Best Actor for John Hurt and Best Production Design. And was nominated for four others, uh, Direction, Screenplay, Cinematography, and Editing. And it was um, based on a true story. Yes. It's based on the surgeon that um, Anthony Hopkins plays his memoirs about the about Joseph Merrick. Was based on that book cool so what did you think of the elephant man um i again i came into this work not knowing much about it i actually for being i don't even know if i can call myself a film buff by saying that i haven't really followed much of the works of david lynch um we've been watching twin peaks yeah and that's like maholland drives great um oh my god i can't stand blue velvet Blue Velvet, I'm not a super fan of, but it's also like it's hard to argue that it's not one of the most interesting watches. Uh, but yeah, so I've never been like a huge David uh, Finch, David Fincher, <laughs> David Lynch fan. Um, but God, like I, uh, I actually, I really enjoyed Elephant Man. Really, I did. Okay, I did. I thought in many aspects it was so bizarre, but 
out of the movies on the be- out of the best picture nominees, I th- and you know what, out of most movies I've seen in my life, it probably has one of my favorite endings of all time. That like dream sequence thing? No. Oh. When he the fact that you find out that he's going to die. Mm-hmm. Like it's only a matter of time and uh and he has this I mean what I'm going to call a perfect night for him. Mm-hmm. Where he goes and to the theater. It, yes, where he goes to the theater, uh people accept him, he's applauded. Um and it's you know we lead up into this before this scene we find out you know he always has to sleep sitting up because otherwise he'll die with the way his head is um and he dream like he dreams to he has a painting in his room of someone sleeping on a bed you know like a normal mm-hmm. human sleeping position and after this perfect night he has at the theater and meeting people and being finally you know feeling accepted after all the trials and tribulations he's gone through he then chooses to lay down like a normal person and i i can't help but uh acknowledge the poetic beauty of that scene um mm-hmm. regardless of how bizarre things i saw before maybe some things weren't working um i thought that i don't know i just thought that was like one of the most powerful endings i've i, I have ever seen and that brought the whole movie put in perspective for me um and I would actually, I wouldn't mind watching again sometime soon. Interesting. I really enjoyed The Elephant Man. Okay. I was surprised at how, how much I'm into it. I and also remind me, I want to talk about a parallel later between Elephant Man and Raging Bull, actually. Maybe I'll probably remember. Okay. I don't know why I'm giving you this note. Let's, I'll Audience, remember that I'm coming back to <laughs> you with a... Put a pin in that a, for yeah. a second. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I did really enjoy The Elephant Man. What did you think? That's interesting. Like, I want to let our listeners know we watch all these movies together, but we have not really discussed them. Yeah, yeah, purposely. We wanted to discuss it here. And I just find that interesting because, um, you know, we're sitting next to each other and having very different experiences. (laughs) 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 I didn't didn't particularly care for the elephant man. Okay. Um, Tell me why. Well, here's here's a question I pose to you. In a movie based on a real person, How important is it to you that things are actually factual? Not very. Okay. Because none of that was factual. <laughs> and that's fine. The thing, and I'm not watching a documentary. I'll say, right, it, I'll say right. it that way. I I understand that fictional events occur in most biopics, mm-hmm. um, and I wouldn't even call this a biopic. Like I just no. think it was. Again, it was based off of a memoir, right? It, this isn't about mm-hmm. like, what's his name, Joel. His real Joel? name is Joseph Merrick. For some reason, in the book that the doctor wrote, he called him John. And in the movie, his name is John. Oh, okay. So, uh, but Merrick, Mr. Merrick. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it's just based on a memoir of, you know, things. And he could have clearly at the time, like, who was going to fact check his shit. Right. Like, right. I, I do understand that. And, but again, just being a work of, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Being a narrative work and not a documentary necessarily. Like, I don't really care too much about things like that sometimes it's upsetting to find out the real thing it didn't occur but that doesn't hurt my uh viewing of a movie well my feelings about it so in the movie you know um anthony hopkins finds him and he's being like severely he's working as a sideshow freak like in a traveling yes show and um the guy who runs the show i guess um his owner in 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 many respects yeah it's like kind of refers to because he bought him right i would imagine that's what he well i don't know about that i think that 
okay. I think his mom must have like worked in a circus too because they like. Well, yeah, she did. She was the elephant. Yeah, she, she got trampled by the elephant. She didn't get trampled. It was like the thing is, it's weird. I guess like in real life, like the guy when he would like tell the story about like before you're gonna see him, the thing was that the she'd been like attacked by an elephant, and like the fear while she was pregnant like caused him to look like this or something. Okay, which yeah. is not no, I figured that thing, but um, um, so yeah, but so anyway, he's being horribly mistreated by this guy, and then um, Anthony Hopkins kind of like saves him for his own. I mean, yeah, to, like, help himself, and then he has to learn, yeah. too, that, like, oh, he's a human being, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, it sounds cheesy just saying it. And right. obviously, you know what's going on, but it, it works in the end for me. Right. But, and while Joseph Merrick did work as a sideshow freak, he was, like, partners with the guy who ran the show. They split everything 50-50. They were, like, okay, really good okay. friends. He wasn't mistreated. He was never abused. He oh, wasn't, okay. like... And, um, and all of that. Like, that's how he made his living, I think, even after he got hooked up with the doctor and everything. But I think, I mean, like, essentially, he was always... So he wasn't treated as... I mean, besides the spectacle of people paying money to see him... Right. He wasn't I'm sure necessarily treated as him. something less than human. I don't... Yeah, he wasn't beat, I don't think, and he wasn't anything okay. like that. And then the stuff with the security guard who was, like, getting paid to, like, show people, like, bring people into his room, and then they, like... You know, and they're, like, pouring champagne on him. And that whole scene was, like, one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen. Yeah, and it worked... Because, I mean, again, at the end of the day, is this movie, you know, this movie, obviously, you don't just take away that it's about Alpha Man, but it's about so many people that have been mistreated uh, right. as less than human throughout our history. You know what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. what makes that seem powerful for me. Right. Um, none of that happened either. Yeah. I, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I guess my like thing is, like, those are the big, like, dramatic beats of that movie okay. is his mistreatment by the by him and then, like, the mistreatment that he's still getting by the security guard. And it's just, like... Without those two things, it was just like, so what, I don't understand what the point was, because, like, the real story of this guy is, like, he had this terrible disease that obviously impacted his life, and I'm sure he was, you know, not treated the best by people because of the way that he looked. But it just seems like, I just don't understand the point of it to a certain extent, because they made up the most dramatic parts. Sure. So you're saying he didn't just lay down and kill himself? I don't believe so. Doesn't matter to me. I mean... (laughs) I understand that. I don't know. No, that, no I, I find that interesting that that's where we differ on that. Yeah. Um, because that does completely change the view of the movie. So mm-hmm. did you know this stuff going in? Yeah. So maybe uh, if I okay. didn't know so that you, while I was watching. You weren't it. even. See, no, no. No more researching before you watch a movie. You uh-huh. can research after the fact. Because, no, you shouldn't have something like that hinder your experience of watching it for the first time. Yeah. And I do think it's interesting. I think, you know, um, Anthony Hopkins gives a pretty good performance. John Hurt, you know, he's acting through all of those prosthetics and stuff. And still very good. I would also like to point out, the year before, and I can't wait to talk about this movie when we get to the the nines, Mm -hmm. but uh, the year before, he had an alien burst out of his chest. And, like, that's one of his iconic performances. It's very short, because that's what sets up the movie Alien. Right. Oh, do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Yeah, no, I I figured you were talking about Alien. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Um but I think it's one of his most iconic roles. And he's also just like so superb in that. He He's superb as Ollivander in yes. Harry Potter in his brief scenes that he's in the franchise. So that guy, he just brings something special to everything. And like knowing that he was the guy under that makeup was one of the most attractive things for me to this movie. I couldn't believe what I was watching and like mm-hmm. who I was watching. And yeah, it was hard to remember that it was John Hurt under there. But at the end of the day... When you, you know, you know it is. And it's just like, well, he gave a beautiful performance mm-hmm. that he didn't end up winning the Oscar for, correct? 
No, he was nominated, but BAFTA gave it to him though. Yeah, they know what's up sometimes more than we do, but that's fine. Yeah, Robert De Niro, that hack. Yeah. <laughs> Just want to point out he's the one that won. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Sometimes I, you know, I'm I'm one of those people. Sometimes it's just like, didn't you just get an award, you know? And like, he didn't. Well, I mean, like, motherfucker didn't win for Godfather Part Two. He did, but that was like years a few, before. A few, it was just like it that was, was like, and that was, was a supporting like four years before. That was supporting. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> but sometimes it's just like give a guy his due. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, and we'll talk about when they do that though too. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> but anyway, do you have anything left to say about Elephant Man? Because I would highly recommend it, but apparently you wouldn't. Well, and I, I do want to say, too, though, you know, talking about how bizarre it was. But, like, as far as a David Lynch movie goes, it's probably the least bizarre thing he's ever made. It's the most straightforward David Lynch movie I think that there is. Oh, okay. Most commercial, would you say? Yeah, most commercial. That's okay. that's the good term. Okay. Um, how other people felt on Rotten Tomatoes has an audience score of 93%. Excellent. Yeah. It is not ranked on any AFI list, although it was nominated. Really? It was nominated for best one of the best lines for um, I'm not an animal. I'm a human being. Yeah. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did not make the actual list. And then it looks like it grossed $25 million. And I don't have numbers for what that okay. would be with inflation. But but yeah. So that is Elephant Man. Me is Coal Miner's Daughter, directed by Michael Apted. Uh, the synopsis, it's a biographical story of Loretta Lynn, a legendary country singer that came from poverty to worldwide fame. She rose from humble beginnings in Kentucky to superstardom, changing the sound and style of country music forever. And uh, I just like to tell it. a little story. <laughs> but when we were watching this movie, uh, the first movie we watched in preparation for this episode and uh, we're sitting there watching it, and it's about what, 45 minutes into the movie. Easily. And uh, Loretta Lynn gets up on that stage for the first time to perform, and she's introduced as Loretta Lynn. Kyle turns to me and says, is this about Loretta Lynn? <laughs> he was completely shocked. I was. Had you know, no idea that coal miner's daughter. <laughs> because to go back to our last conversation, I don't like to put any research. <laughs> <laughs> no, none at all. Into beforehand. Uh, I, I literally had no idea. I've heard about Coal Miners Daughter, and maybe I knew that at one point in my mm-hmm. life, but not having any reference to have seen it. I'd also um, just like to, for some context as well, last summer we went to Nashville <laughs> and visited the Ryman Auditorium, where portions of this movie were filmed, and where costumes from this movie were, were exhibited. Yeah, no, it makes sense. <laughs> it does. It, uh, it's all coming back. Um, sure. <laughs> anyway. Uh, what do you think about it? Once you once you knew it was a biopic about Loretta Lynn, <laughs> you know I don't think that changed my opinion on the movie. Um, I absolutely adored it. I think it's important to note that 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 scene happens. Yeah, like about forty five minutes into the movie, so mm-hmm. we get forty five minutes of Loretta as basically you know a child uh, going through. There's a lot of child sex in the movies nominated for this that's year. That's true. That's true. But she's growing up in this you know rural area of Kentucky. Um, and she's I, what, 13 when the movie starts or so. Yeah, because she's like about to turn 14. Yeah, and then young Tommy Lee Jones notices her and wants to ma- have sex with her, marry her to presumably just have sex with her is what it feels like at first. Anyway. Certainly what it feels like, yes. It's, it's a very creepy vibe. <laughs> and, and I'm just taking this movie as like, what is this? Like, is this about a marriage where two people, you know, they start off young and they fall in, you know, they, you know, mm-hmm. they end up falling in love. Like, I was just watching this, you know, rural America story um unfold and i was 
invested all the way. And so 45 minutes finding out this is about Loretta Lynn. Yeah, it was a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a great surprise. This this movie, I feel I haven't seen every uh, music related biopic around, but I feel like it certainly set a standard. Um, Mm -hmm. It was beautifully done by Michael Apted, who's most famous for his Up series. Um, And I was just shocked. I don't know. I was just shocked. I was so mad at myself. Unlike most of the other movies on this list, I was so mad at myself for not having seen it before. Uh, I loved everything from the cinematography to the acting. The direction was great. The editing, I think, was superb. Um, And... Yeah, the, the the music was great, and the fact that it was about Loretta Lynn, someone I had not paid attention to much throughout my life, but had definitely been around. Um, it was it was it was truly great, and it was honestly, it's I mean it it's it's honestly probably going to become like one of my favorite movies of all time easily. Wow, and I mean like on a long list, sure, sure, but certainly there, I was I was so pleasantly surprised, and I'm glad to see it did well in the box office, as you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and it certainly got, it, you know, it's it's due for award as well, for awards as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sissy Spacek won the Oscar for Best Actress. Yeah, she was incredible. And she legitimately convinced me she was between 13 and wherever the movie ended in her yeah. 20s or whatever, but I was, I was with that the whole way. Like, I could feel in some circumstances an actor playing a 13-year-old, like, Right. Maybe don't feel so awkward because of the Tommy Lee provocativeness, but or Tommy Lee Jones. I shouldn't say Tommy Lee. That's a whole other provocative uh, <laughs> guy. That would have been a completely different movie. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I honestly felt cringed because it's just like I believe well, Sissy Spacek is. Yeah, and like, also Tommy Lee Jones didn't as convincingly play as young as he was supposed to be in those early. Oh, he scenes. sure did. No. <laughs> yeah, he certainly looked. He looked. He had like, to be like what he looked close to forty, honestly. He, <laughs> and he might have been. I don't know how old Tommy Lee Jones is, but he <laughs> certainly has a rough face, which I just thought was there with age. You know, it's it's, it's been there. Been around, yeah, uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, she was so phenomenal. I think Tommy Lee Jones was absolutely great. And, he you know, was really great. It's good to see. Like again, I haven't seen a lot of his early work, but you know, obviously he's great in almost anything he does do mm-hmm. um and it's great to see that's like always been the case and he was i don't know it's just it was so wonderful to see a young performance by him mm-hmm. um and such a powerful interesting character as well um where i think you know the, the there's the whole phrase you know behind every great man is a great woman it's a great phrase but i feel that's the opposite to like that you could flip that here and um even yeah. though they both have their flaws they're human beings i think you know, you can attribute a lot of her success to how much he was invested in her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they had their ups and downs, obviously. Obviously, they're human. I mean, right. you know, we can't say that. But I, I really do feel like he was invested in her and so believably. And regardless of, you know, this may not be true, Devin. I don't know how accurate this movie is compared to. But it doesn't change the fact that it was a great movie and they were great characters. Yeah. Well, it was um the movie was based on the biography that was written about Loretta Lynn by George Vessi. Um, and she was still alive when this movie came out. She was 48 years old. When this oh, movie yeah, came out. sure. Yeah, which is interesting. You know, that's so interesting in itself that 
a movie like this was made from, you know, I know Loretta and she was a big name and, and mm-hmm. all, but yeah, she was still very much relevant. Well, and I think she, I mean, she's still performing today. Like she still goes on tour now. Yeah. So it's like she this, was recording music with Jack White. Like, yeah. Speaker. Yeah. And it's like, she, uh, so really this was like, just like the first half of her career because she's still gone on yeah, for another yeah, like yeah. almost 40 years. So yeah, like, you knew you weren't going to get into much trouble at water. Like if right. anything, I was again like what this movie really is about more than just loretta's rise is how it got there and how her relationship with her husband mm-hmm. is really very much of the reason she's there and that's that's so beautiful to me that love played such a huge role in this um and it's it's great because that's that's where all the stakes were because you knew loretta lynn at the end of the day and this movie is gonna be fine right because she's still very relevant she's not dead this is about her right her you've heard of her, her so dr- she like she became famous yeah, or her <laughs> drug problems or whatever you know this was about right. I, I was worried that they weren't going to survive. That was the stakes mm-hmm. for this movie for me, mm-hmm. is that this couple wasn't going to survive. And I was, I was like, oh. And this very much, because, I mean, it starts with them meeting and then ends with them, you know, still bickering and they're still. Yeah, but they're still fucking in love. You they know? are. I'm sorry to swear, but they're still very much in love. And it's changed. It's evolved. Mm-hmm. And but it's just, I don't know. It's such a human story. Mm-hmm. Do you want to hear a fun story? I would love to hear a fun story. So Sissy Spacek was offered the role. I guess Loretta Lynn personally picked her out from a series of pictures because she didn't. She wasn't familiar with her work, but she saw a picture of her and she was like, "I like her." So they offered Sissy Spacek the role, but she was between this and like another movie, and she couldn't decide which one she wanted to do. And she, I guess, she like prayed and was like, "Give me a sign." And then that night, her and her husband went out um, for a drive, and they got in the car, and Coal Miner's daughter came on the radio. Shut up. Yeah, that's the story she tells. And you know what? Even if it's not true, <laughs> it's a great story. It's a great story. <laughs> so obviously she chose to do it. Um, and also I want to also point out the fact that she and Beverly D'Angelo, who played Patsy Cline, both did their own singing for this film. Oh, I, I did not know that. That's great. And they, I mean, she sounds, both. I mean, both of them, both Patsy Cline and Loretta Lynn, have such a distinct way yeah. of singing, and they both captured it perfectly, I Which think. Which is Beverly D'Angelo, I mean, like, all I can honestly say I've seen her in is the vacation movies. Mm-hmm. And what a surprise turn here and such a such a wonderful performance. She was really good. And they <laughs> used her just as much as they needed to. And I thought uh, the use of Patsy Cline in this movie I thought was superb. I had, like, one of those moments where I'm, like, watching it and then she's like, oh, I got to go do the show. And then I was like, oh, no, I think Patsy Cline's out in a car in a plane crash. I was like, oh, yeah. no. I, like, remembered that as the movie was happening. Oh, okay, gotcha. I was like, I don't think that's going to go well. <laughs> But, you know, so fine. And, and that's where the stakes were because, again, people knew that that was about to happen. So right. that scene plays even better. You know, like, oh, when I get back, we'll do this, blah, blah, right. blah. And you just know there's there's some tragedy and it just adds some emotional uh, some emotional depth to that scene. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very good. That's all I can really say about it okay. that you haven't already said. Yeah. Certainly um, one of the best pictures of uh, 1980. Absolutely. Um. How other people felt on Rotten Tomatoes has an audience score of 86%. Um, it was ranked number 70 on AFI's list of 100 Years, 100 Cheers, which were their most inspiring movies. Oh, very cool. Okay. Um, and like I said, it was the only it was only the only best pe- picture nominee that was in the top 10 for the year. Um, it was number seven. Oh, at the box tra- office? At box office, 67 yeah, million. Gross. So. Which goes, you know, it goes to show how loved she was. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. She was obviously, obviously still very relevant there. Yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, that's where I'm sure a majority of that money came from. And, you know, talking about relevance today, like you were saying, I think that a lot of biopics that come out now, whether it's like Walk the Line or, right, or like any of those other things, I think do 
a lot to this movie. I think they owe, a, a, yeah, I think they owe very, something very special. I mean, in the fact that like they all even start with just like as a child, what molded right. her <laughs> right. or what molded him, you know, and it's just same thing. Most uh, the most poor adaptation is Ray, in my opinion, but that. that's just the one I thought of. But <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't think it's that great, but it's, just, it's a little a little divisive. Whereas this movie does not feel divisive in any way. I mean, I can say that because I didn't even know what it was about right. for the first 45 minutes. But I wonder, too, if they, like, maybe felt like they should play it safe because, you know, she, people, the people in that movie were still alive. Like, she was still alive when this movie came out. Like, I don't know if he do was still enough. alive, but. Well, fair enough. But I, I don't, you know, what, it's, so, it's still so so wonderfully done. Um, mm-hmm. It I don't think, you know, I don't think it, I don't think they were, they could have made something grittier. I don't think it would have been necessary. Right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Okay. So our next nominee for Best Picture was Raging Bull, directed by Martin Scorsese. Um, synopsis, an emotionally self-destructive boxer's journey through life is the violence and temper that leads him to the top in the ring destroys his life outside it. It's a very poetic synopsis for IMDb, I gotta say. <laughs> I like it. Um, now, Raging Bull is the only movie of these five nominees that I had seen prior to us. Okay. Watching them for this podcast. Um and again, like cards on the table, Martin Scorsese is probably one of my favorite directors of all time. Uh, the reason that I had seen this movie before is because I was writing a paper about him as an auteur. Okay. And I also um, I wrote a paper about the editing of this film as well. But um, which is excellent. Yes, yes, it is considered. Well, I have a fun fact. In uh, 2012, *Raging Bull* was voted by the Motion Picture Editors Guild as the best edited film of all time wow that is a that is an interesting fact mm-hmm. um out of all the movies nominated for best picture i would certainly agree that it is the best edited movie did it win best editing that yes, year yes thelma skinmaker won best okay, editing. and she oh she deserves every every uh pound of that trophy mm-hmm. um yeah i mean that so stands out regardless of as it, it was just it's so well edited like it's the pacing is, is really great mm-hmm. um very visually striking in in its compositions they chose to include yeah, it's a a beautiful film, really. And it's in black and white. And um Oh, so speaking of black and white. Oh, okay. So the other movie on this list, you know, this is the year 1980. A uh, yes. black and white, not really thought about too much. Doesn't really happen. No. It happened with in the 70s still with Manhattan. I believe that came out in Oh wait, no, maybe that was 80s, later 80s. Can't I think don't when Manhattan came out, but I don't know. I mean, that's one of the more recent, you know, black and white movies There's that not are a lot that classics. Do. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, I didn't really pay attention while watching Elephant Man that it was black and white. And it's probably because I went into it thinking like, oh, it's just David Lynch being fucking weird, you know, <laughs> or, it's, you know, it's dated, obviously. I mean, that's the point they're trying to make, you know, make it look. Yeah. Because, you know, not everybody could do the Godfather sepia tone like to show, you know what I mean? I don't think everyone might copy that, especially so close to the Godfather movies. Be- right. Having been uh, released because they really did establish what became probably the essential look of the early night, you know, early 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, as far as that would look on film for the next, you know, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I was, you know, w- when raging bull came on, I couldn't help, but think like, I'm, I'm thinking like, why did he choose to make this in black and white? And the only like cinematic choice I would agree with, and I know nothing about this by the way. So okay. I, if you do know, I would gladly hear about it. The only cinematic reference I could, I could think of, is that he chose it because that's the way everybody saw Jake LaMotta's fights was in black and white mm-hmm. on television. However, I would like, and this may be a uh, this may be a theory that's already out there. I have no idea, but 
to think that like wow that movie's in black and white elephant man's also in black and white they came out the same year i would like to attribute their black and whitedness to the fact that both movies included a strong use of makeup with, huh. with Elephant Man, obviously, right, right. and Jake LaMotta's nose on Robert De Niro throughout the entirety of the movie. I thought he was method. Didn't they just break his nose multiple <laughs> no, times? No, no, no. Oh, okay. But that's really artistically, I guess that's not the artistic, but I mean in the, ma- in the makeup sense, I guess it is. Mm-hmm. But that is really why, that is what I'm going to personally believe. That's a good was the theory. the main reason behind why both of those movies shot in black and white. Again, I think Martin Scorsese can back up all day that it was the Jake LaMotta fight you know mm-hmm. scenario and yeah and maybe is that not the truth well i heard an anecdote that may or not may not be true oh, okay okay it, but, but then but then i do think that you know lynch could have wanted to make another black and white movie like obviously before that his success was a racer head also shot in black and white but i mean at that point he clearly had money behind him he didn't need to shoot in black and white i think i had read with them like because the <clears> the <throat> producers had seen a racer head like that's what they they picked him because of a racer head and i think they maybe wanted it in black and white see but again did that come again from a makeup point of view? It, like, that's a very a good lot of makeup point and we don't want it to look like garbage right because i think in both of those situations i don't think the makeup would have been very i think it would have looked worse in color for it sure. would have looked worse in color and these are both movies they wanted to put a lot of money behind they put a lot of talent behind uh-huh. they weren't going to have something like that make or break an audience viewing the picture mm-hmm. all right but but yeah so no please enlighten me on uh well the the story that i heard was that they were getting ready to film and they had um uh, the boxing gloves that Jake LaMotta was supposed to use. And they were like a burgundy color or something. And the, I, I don't know if it was Jake LaMotta. I don't know if he was on set as a consultant, but whoever their box. Was on set okay. As a consultant. So Jake was like, that's not the color that the gloves were back then. Like, that's not the right color red. That's not what they were. And so then they were just like, well, what, we're not going to make it. We can't do it accurate enough. So we'll just do it in black and white. That's Cause that's sto- what it looks that like. That story's garbage to me, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, that's absolute garbage to me. To take it away from it not being just like a direct artistic decision from Martin Scorsese immediately just throws it. Well, I think, I think honestly, anytime someone does a black and white film, not when they had to, but as a choice, I think most of the times you see it, it obviously is a period piece. Um, and I think with like Rage and Bull, they're doing it because it is how people saw it. It feels more realistic because that's how people see the past. I think it's the same thing sure. why... Um, uh, Schindler's List is in black and white because that's the way people viewed the Holocaust was in black and white. Sure, so it looks more realistic. That's a very good point. And that, and that again, yeah, that goes to like my original theory why I think it mm-hmm. is, but and the same thing I, with elephant man. I think obviously the only pictures that exist of Joseph Merrick are in black and white. So that's going to look the most like the real pictures. I'm just saying that makeup though. I mean, I do think I that's do a good it point. Oddly coincidental that both film feature makeup prominently, but I think the makeup in raging bull, they could have made look, you think so? I don't. It's not like the makeup in Elephant Man. You know what I no, mean? No, I, I know. It I was know just his nose. <laughs> but, is he, but when someone's in every frame of the movie, and well, for the most part, nearly every frame of the movie. But his nose doesn't look that bad. I mean, it gets worse as the movie goes on. Yeah, what, I know. I, th- I, it's, I think it's very essential to the character. I mean, looking at if you look at Jake LaMotta mm-hmm. and you look at Robert De Niro, mm-hmm. like that nose really makes the connection between Robert De Niro and Jake LaMotta. Yeah. Like, they really went for something. They didn't need to include it. But I think, you know, for anybody mm-hmm. that really cared, that really did seal the deal. So I do feel like it was a very essential part of that film. I agree. I agree. Anyway. Rageable. 
raging ball is that all we had to say well, that's what i wanted to get out there from <laughs> earlier uh but uh no no please why don't you speak to to raging bull for a minute um i mean i honestly i stand with a lot of people and saying that i think it's one of the best movies of all time that's all that's all you um i mean i think it's great i think the performances are great um robert de niro obviously had been in stuff before but that was joe pesci's first movie kathy moriarty's first movie who played his wife vicky um I, don't, I hate the way you're looking at me. I feel like you're just going to like try to crush everything I'm saying. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I was just thinking about something else. All right, you go ahead. Um, I think it's great. And I think a lot of it was improvised. I know that Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese worked a lot together to get the um, dialogue to feel natural, to make it feel, you know. And I do think, obviously, Jake LaMotta wasn't a very nice person. He was very yeah. violent. Again, he uh, married a 15-year-old. Yeah. Sex <laughs> a 15-year-old and then married her um, and then are, beat her. <laughs> definitely connecting themes throughout Right? This. There's so many, like, child. Yeah. Really? Like <laughs> It's really strange. Yeah. Elephant Man is the only one that didn't. Well, in Ordinary People. But, ordinary, yeah. but that was about but children. Was three out of five movies connected through, you know, sex with teenage girls. You know? Yeah. It's, very strange for one year of uh, best picture nominees it is strange um and yeah and i do think you know obviously he wasn't a good person but i also think that that's kind of the point the film is trying to make it's that like these things that made him great are also what destroyed like you know what i mean they weren't good qualities that he had sure absolutely and um yeah that's all i really had to say i hate the way you're looking at me i'm not looking at anything uh, to say that this that Raging Bull is not you know a good movie is insane because its acting is superb. Yes, its direction is great. Cinematography is beautiful. The editing you've already heard mm-hmm. me talk about. Um, as far as I maybe I'm getting ahead of myself when saying standing up to this day. Uh, I don't think it works, and you don't think it ages well. Do not think it ages well. In fact. I don't even particularly like this movie. I know. I knew you were going <laughs> to. I've been, I've been waiting for this. And I promise you, I'm not trying to be contrarian on this. I've found myself watching this and like thinking last night, why am I watching this movie? I'm not watching what I once believed to be like one of the, be- the best boxing movies of all time because it's not about boxing. No. It's about a male chauvinist mm-hmm. pig who in every scene of the movie where he's not punching a boxer is in some way being physically or uh verbally you know he's he's physically or verbally fighting a woman right in his life and i find like what why is this being glorified do you think it was glorified though i thought the what the the movie wasn't saying look at this pillar of maledom i think that they were saying like this wasn't good he i don't think it was glorifying what he was okay. doing okay listen though if a movie like this came out like about Trump or, you know, someone who's kind of vilified in the public eye or whatever, or or maybe someone who at least is just more um, like more recent popular. Like I have no doubt in my mind Jake LaMotta was huge in the 40s and 50s. Right. No doubt in my mind. However, Jake LaMotta means nothing to me. So to watch two hours mm-hmm. of this guy who I'm sure many loved and then just watching them tear him down or whatever it is, that does nothing for me because – the only Jake LaMotta I'm exposed to right now is this just terrible human being that I'm watching for two hours just be terrible. But then he he's terrible, but it 
it's not like he gets away with being terrible being no, terrible I ruins his that. life i understand that i'm just saying like overall like that movie just and, and, and honestly i just i remember like loving it mm-hmm. when i went off when i first got into into movies basically and um now i don't know why like i i truly i'm I'm not you know again i understand that it's loved by many mm-hmm. it's obviously a great character piece uh, but it ju- it was just hard to watch for me because I was just watching. You know, it's like with you and Breaking Bad, you hate Walter White, right? Right. I hated like all normal people. Yeah, sure, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. I hated watching Jake LaMotta. Like I, I don't know. Like it's just everything. It was cringeworthy. Like how he treated. There was just no redeeming, redeeming quality about this character mm-hmm. to me. And that I don't was, think there was supposed to be though. I understand that. I'm just okay. letting you know the reason. I okay. didn't particularly care for it. I'm not saying no one should. I understand its role in the pentathlon of movies. Like, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I I, mean, I personally... You, I think if you, like, run down the list of what makes a movie great, if you look at the visuals... It checks the off acting, a lot of the marks. I get the it. Edit, like, I get it, it's but, a stunning but story work of art. will always be my most important criteria, and I don't find this story particularly interesting. I can tell you neither did Jake LaMotta's brother. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. What a great segment. That was perfect. That was perfect. I I wanted to, I do want to say one thing, like don't hate me. You know, like again, the performances were great. The act, like Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro. Joe Pesci. Undeniably great. Lacked a little bit for most other characters, but like doesn't matter because the movie, if it was about, I mean, they're the anything was about the main those, people. Yeah, the Lamadas. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which Joe Pesci got nominated for an Oscar as well. Good, for best good. Supporting actor. That guy is so talented. It's ridiculous how much talent he has in his little body. Well, I mean, I'm not saying he's not talented. I'm also saying I've never seen him play anyone besides that character. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you're good at something, you do it. But that's the thing. So he's a great character actor. That doesn't right. take away from anything. You know what I mean? No. And I do want to say one other thing too. The end of the movie. Yeah. With the on the waterfront yes dialogue would also even though i said i didn't particularly like this movie would also go down as one of my favorite endings of all time it's beautiful you know me i love fucking depressing or melancholy you know endings oh i know (laughs) and this fits those criteria you know completely and i do really appreciate that and again i do appreciate most of this movie it's just again i can't personally you know, I don't know. So you're saying you, know you don't saying. think it aged well. You don't think that it. Um, I think it was probably perfectly fine for 1980. I do not think it is essential viewing for 2017. You don't think it's essential viewing. I do not. But you think it's relevant. Obviously, it has inspired so many other filmmakers. It's still. Oh, sorry. Yes. I just meant like, sorry. I particularly wouldn't recommend it for the average person. As far as like that's an insane a cinephile goes, like yeah, I agree. <laughs> like I mean, like all the other things I said, it, it checked off the list. That is fine. But I'm just saying, I wouldn't personally be like, oh yeah, you should definitely see Raging Bull, mm-hmm. unless it, unless there was some niche reason why in this conversation with somebody. But mm-hmm. yeah, I can't honestly say it. I can't honestly say it. What did you think of the level of violence that were was in the movie? It was it was gratuitous. Do you think so? I do. See what I think? Because like I know reviews of the time, they really disliked how violent it was. That was sure. a big problem for the movie. But watching it, and I'm like, I'm a baby, so I can't watch any violence. So there were definitely times when I was like covering my eyes. Yeah. But I also think that 
it is much less violent than even probably like some PG-13 movies are now. True. You think about the Saw movies or the Hostel movies or like whatever. Well, yeah, that's gratuitous in my opinion. But I'm not, I can't, how can you compare it to? Well, I'm just like talking that. about level of violence that we've become accustomed to. I think that if this movie, I mean, I don't think this movie is that violent, really. Comparatively? Comparatively. I mean, but, like, in the Saw movies, you don't see just, like, husbands beating their wives either. So I feel like it really goes to the point of that, what true. type of violence is it. You know what I mean? Because I care so much less about someone getting their legs hacked off in a... I don't think that's the pro- part that people had a problem with, though. What do you mean? The par- I think it was the boxing scenes, like, with blood, like, spraying out. The, the scene where he, like, he's fighting Sugar Ray, sure, their, but their it, last but fight. But it, it felt glorified. Like, it felt like... It, it felt unnecessary to me. It felt like for some reason we're highlighting that. And maybe that's the point to watch the end of his career or, you know, he's, he's well, getting destroyed. Seeing how violent but. boxing is in general, too. Yeah. I, I mean, it is a very violent sport. And we didn't know. Exa- we didn't necessarily know back then, too, what it did to people. Later right. On. That's so, what I was thinking about, too. So that I do find interesting where he's just taken a beating in the later part of his career. And then look what he became. Mm-hmm. Look at the person he became. I don't think he was ever necessarily a bad person, maybe an overprotecting creep, but like he obviously this, you know, brain damage led to him right. doing worse and worse things throughout his life. There's no denying that. Right. Yeah. I think ob- obviously he had some brain damage at some point yeah. because, but I mean, you can't get hit in the head that many times. The reason I go With back, I don't, CTE, I don't, is that what it's called? What's that? CTE. Yeah. 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 And I hope I'm not beating a dead horse here, but I, I do want to clarify like what I mean in the fact that, you know, this movie is just, it's taking, you know, someone who is loved in the public eye as far as boxing goes, mm-hmm. and it's just showing you their their personal side of that person in a bad way. And that's what I don't think holds up because I don't think, like, in our generation, people know or follow Jake LaMotta. That's why well, I don't okay, think I it think stands you're like, I think you're also, though, overemphasizing how much people knew about Jake LaMotta in 1980. I mean, he was famous in the 40s for sure. boxing. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think that – I really don't think people were like, oh, I want to see this new Jake LaMotta picture. I don't think people in 1980 knew who Jake LaMotta was. I think that this was just a way to tell this kind of story. And I think, obviously, it's based on a book um, about Jake LaMotta. And – um. I think Martin Scorsese or whatever, they read that book and were like, this is the kind of story I want to tell and this is the way I want to tell. But I think it was more about telling this kind of story and then Jake LaMotta is the vehicle with which they told it as opposed to they wanted to tell a story of Jake LaMotta and this is what they told. Do you know what I mean? I would agree with that, but still the the decision that was made to tell Jake LaMotta's story cannot go like unrecognized. So if this was the same exact movie, but it wasn't about Jake, it was just like they gave it a different, a random name and it was just some then fictional I would, boxer. Then I would see no reason to watch it. <laughs> okay. Do you know what I mean? I guess. Like I can at least understand that we're watching like the real life of someone, you know, mm-hmm. of a very complicated person. Mm-hmm. I can at least see that if they made all this shit up. <laughs> no, like, <laughs> I'm sorry. And I, it's funny because this whole rest of this conversation has been about like, oh, I don't care if things are fictitious, but like, if you're, you're like, if it was it, fake, there's no point. <laughs> I know. But if it has no absolutely, you know, I don't know. But. And we don't know how much of this is true. Like I said, um, Joseph Lamata, Jake's brother sued them for, um, the way he was depicted in this movie. Why? He didn't like it. Like the way that he personally was yes. depicted or the, or the way his brother Jake was. The thing I read that he, the way he was depicted. 
I mean, obviously, Jake LaMotta signed off on it, you know. It was great. Like, did he not like the stuff with him, like, cheating on his wife or taking his wife out? Yeah. Yeah, I get that. That might be the part he had a problem with. Okay, but then you you probably should have had a problem with it 20 years before, you know? (laughs) Like, not... Well, and I mean, I don't know if they ever made up. In the movie, it kind of makes it seem like they never really made up. It, I think it's open for interpretation. Yeah. I think that's one of the most touching parts is I feel like a lot of people have probably been through a similar scenario to that as far as falling <laughs> apart with anybody. They probably slept with their husband's wife and they got oh, their no, I don't mean that. And also, that's a good question is like, did he sleep with the wife like recently or did he sleep before they so. were married? Because that's the impression I took. Like, yeah. Before they were married, it's just like, why are you freaking out, bro? Well, because he was a crazy person. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly that i couldn't really uh, get attached to because he was so crazy and i'm not asking you to be attached to him i mean you argue with me all the time that you can watch breaking bad without liking walter white and it's still you care about his journey but you don't care about jake lamato's journey walter white has redeeming qualities he does not okay Devin, we need to move on to what was the other movie well wait i have to i have to run through how other people (laughs) felt about raging ball how did how did others feel about well on rotten tomatoes the audience score is 93 percent pretty high um as far as uh the american film institute their original list that they published for the 100 greatest films of all time in 1997 raging bull was ranked number 24 um they redid the list in their 10-year anniversary in 2007 and raging bull was bumped up to number four okay um it's also ranked on their number one sports movie and number 51 on their 100 thrills which was for action or suspense movies Cool Runnings is a better sports movie than this movie. You're like, this is our first episode and you're just like <laughs> shooting all credibility that we have. <laughs> like, I just said, like, at least guys, that movie's more about a sport. I'm just saying. You sound insane. <laughs> you sound like an insane person right now. How do I feel? You just said cool runnings. <laughs> is it, it has more sports. Okay. You know, that's not true also, right? <laughs> they sucked as a bobsled <laughs> team. <laughs> But I'm saying it's more about the sport than okay. this movie is about boxing. Jake Lamont actually like won his fights though. <laughs> um, box office it did not do well. Um, it earned oh, wow. 23.4 million compared to its 18 million dollar budget. Wow. Okay. So was um, his last film before this Taxi Driver? I would just, yeah I think so in 1976 yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, yeah it didn't do great in the in the box office, but I think that you know I'm surprised yeah. Yeah, in 1990, it became the first film to be selected for preservation in the National Film Registry in its first year of eligibility. Nice. So, other people think it's good, Kyle. I'm not saying that... They're going to take your films away. I thought, okay, wait, hold on. Is this podcast about what other people are supposed to feel about something or what we feel about something? It's what we feel about it, but it's also about talking about which films are the most important to to us as a culture. As us as a culture? Yes. Okay. And I just think Raging Bull is kind of important to movie history. I mean, that's inarguable. No one's going to, like, hear what I have to say and be like, oh, maybe he's right. Maybe I should just go watch Cool Runnings instead. I think it's important for me to address things that maybe you don't think about and you should make your own opinion on. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Like the fact that it was shot in black and white because of Jake's nose. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Moving on to the winner of Best Picture of nineteen eighty. Ordinary People, directed by Robert Redford. Synopsis. Who? The accidental death of the older son of an affluent family deeply strains the relationships among the bitter mother, the good-natured father, and the guilt-ridden younger son. Tell me how much you loved this movie, Kyle. I can't wait to hear about it. 
can't wait to hear about how much you loved ordinary people. I did. <laughs> I know you did. <laughs> I was sitting here watching this depressing family melodrama and I was like, he is loving every second of it. Okay. And I do have to preface this with when we were having this conversation, I was stating how much I hated ordinary people. Yeah. Um, because over a little over 10 years ago, I, for, for a class in high school, I had to read the book and then it was a film and lit class and I had to read the book and then watch the movie. And so what could only possibly be the fact that like back when I read this book, I didn't think the movie did as good of a job as the book could be the only reason mm-hmm. that I didn't like this movie because while watching it the other night, I was like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> and again, don't, I, you know, I don't remember much of the book, so that's probably helping the situation, which is good. Whatever. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed ordinary people way more than I thought I was going to again. I can check it off, you know, I think it had great directing, and yeah. I think it was led by its performances and script. My biggest problem, like, cinematography was, like, nothing to write home about. Raging Bull, cool Raging Bull probably sweeps in that in that, in that regard. Um, but, I mean, it just wasn't as interesting. You know what I mean? I mean, the movie sets, it's mostly in a house, in an office. You know what I mean? There's not right. a lot of beauty to really show out of that. Um, sure. Not to say there's anything wrong with that. I'm not saying you know they did anything wrong. They did you know they worked with what they had. Um, the editing was probably my biggest problem and also like one of my highest regards, which is weird. Hmm. I hated the first 20 minutes or so. Um, as far as the editing went, there was just like I don't even call it, want to call it match cuts, but it was just like oh a locker door slams, next scene oh a bus passes in front. It's just like this is yeah. you know I was like this is just so cheesy awful like not you know quality but then we get to a scene later in the movie which is probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie itself where donald sutherland and mary tyler moore the parents of timothy hutton's character connor conrad conrad i'm sorry um they're at a party and they're just mingling with other yeah with other you know socialites other affluent people in this lake forest community um and it's just the most mundane, boring, bullshit conversation you would expect people like this to have. Mm-hmm. And we're just getting these little tidbits of conversations as the as the the movie is cutting around to different parts of this party. And that's where I was like, "Whoa, I need to reevaluate how I feel about this editing," you know. And and and, mm-hmm. and, and, and like, am I crazy? You know, or whatever. And but I, I just really I thought that that scene was done so well. It really established those characters and who they are in their uh, public life, who they are in the eye of their friends, you know, what they have to do to appease outside of the familial setting of what is the rest of this movie. Um, it really obviously how Mary Tyler Moore's character, the mother, feels, you know, about herself or her family is in the public eye is very important. To right. Her. Um and I feel like that's no more, you know, obvious in this scene. It really helps establish that for the later scenes to come involving her and Conrad. Um, but, yeah, uh, other than that, I think I just kind of got lost when I was saying. But, uh, you know, if, if there's a connection of the things I really loved about these movies is these small moments. And I think that is like one of those particular moments as well as uh, a scene um, with Conrad and his uh, his psychiatrists office played by an amazing judd hirsch i love judd hirsch like holy shit and the one thing i did actually read 
before going into this. That was supposed to be Gene Hackman. Yes. And then scheduling conflicts or something. Yeah, Gene Hackman had to film for like Superman 2 or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Did you reshoots for Superman Uh, 2? (laughs) Yeah. And uh, so Judd Hirsch got to like walk on set and just. He filmed all his stuff in like nine days or something. And he just stole the film in his scenes. Mm-hmm. In my personal opinion, he was also nominated for an Oscar. I did see his nominee. He didn't win. Um, Cause but Timothy Hutton won. What? Cause Timothy Hutton won. Oh yeah. Okay. That's in- see, but see, that's and we have a problem with that. Whereas Timothy Hutton was nominated for best supporting actor. Yeah, he's clearly he the was lead of that the movie. lead of the movie. He's the lead of the book. You know, and it's, it's just yeah, it's all it's told, told from, from his, his perspective. perspective. Yes. So it's like, wh- but he couldn't have beat whatever. De Niro. We have a long history of not understanding how Oscars and other well, they just make pick which categories they want that they have the best chance at. he knew he wasn't going against John no, Hurt Robert De Niro he wasn't going to win yeah but I don't think it's up to the studios or whatever to press or the actors to press which category they fall in there's 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 set criteria they submit for which category they want but that's I know but what I'm saying <laughs> is I don't think that's fair oh no no, that's what not. I'm saying is like there should be criteria in place that yeah, prevents like something much like that from time happening. are you on the screen or like how oh we have a seven episode series about OJ Simpson that is somehow a fucking movie well they the changed the, the rules Academy, for that now. which they did they did they did they did um but yeah uh please you talk about ordinary people for a second because I just feel like I've been rambling on it well going into this I had the like I said the only movie that I'd seen was Raging Bull and I loved it so I went into this kind of being like ordinary people robbed Raging Bull this is bullshit this is, I don't want to watch some dumbass family drama like bleh. that's how I felt yeah, yeah, I agree. going I agree. into I it I agree I did too um so I was I was really I really liked ordinary people I thought it was a great film <laughs> I thought that um the acting across the board is great Timothy Hutton was great Mary Tyler Moore like to cast her is just crazy too because obviously she's most famous for playing Laurie Petrie or playing uh, Mary Richards which are two very like upbeat women in comedies and then for to have her play this character which is also a very interesting character I just don't think you see very many mothers depicted the way she was oh absolutely as being the more unloving of the parents yes um which I just thought that was a brave choice and brave casting yeah to cast her in that to cast the beloved mary tyler moore yeah. in a role that you're probably gonna hate yeah no, I, we were watching i was like i never thought i'd hate mary tyler yeah. moore but like i hated her in this movie um but also i was thinking too um you know we're talking about how they hold up and stuff but i think it's also important to look at like which films captured that year too because it is about you know the year 1980 and i do think it's a little unfair kind of in this year because this is the only film that was nominated that was contemporary all the other ones were period pieces mm-hmm. but i also think that this but i think you can still have the ethics and the morals of a cert of a modern time even in a period piece sure but in ordinary people i think i think back in like the 70s and the 80s there was a feeling of parents being more detached from their children than they are now. I think now we have like helicopter parents and like all and like parents are just very very sure. involved in their children's lives. I think lives. the movement started back then. With I think it started after like late eighties. Was it late eighties? Oh, okay, okay. I think like because I mean this movie is obviously made like in the late in like the seventy late seventies, but um, like seventy nine I think yeah. it was obviously made. But um, I think in this like in the seventies when you started having more mothers working more two, um, fam- two income families. And then you had more, a lot more latchkey children and that kind of stuff, which had never happened before because usually moms were just home all the time. 
But I think there was like a more parents just weren't as involved in their kids lives. They were more detached. They weren't as like obsessed with their children as I think parents are now. And I think this film kind of like is an interesting way, like a snapshot of that. And obviously this is in like a, an extreme situation where one of the children has died and the other one is experiencing grief and the the parent, the, the mom is not willing to, to acknowledge but I just thought it was interesting because I'm like, you wouldn't, I just don't think you know if you would see a movie like that anymore because it's, I think it's more off-putting to us now to see a mother like that than it even was then. Like, I think obviously it was off-putting. She was not being a very good mother. But I think also parents were more like that back then, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Sure. Um, I kind of agree. And then maybe, I don't know, maybe this isn't a full agreeance, but, uh, I think what's so brave about this movie too, to use that word again, is that it tackled um, depression. Right. For what had to be like one of the earliest examples uh, of that and showing how, you know, trauma can affect somebody and how, you know, how it can tear apart a family, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like, you know, it's Marilee Tyler Moore's not understanding of it that really, really hurts or she's going through it in her own way. Right. I think that's a big part of it is that like all three of them are obviously grieving. Like all three of them are hurting and it's just how differently they're all reacting to it. And I think that the Mary Taylor Moore's character, she can't deal with it. She just can't do it. And so she's not willing, even though her son and her husband, I think are ready to deal with it. She isn't. isn't, And so she's refusing. And that's really where the tension comes in and where the like, stakes coming and everything because she's just she's not gonna do it sure you know which i think is interesting and i don't even today like think about that like you don't see a lot of movies where that's the way grief is portrayed i think a lot of times grief gets portrayed in one way yeah but there's so many different ways people experience it and process it i I think one of the best you know examples is most recent with manchester by the sea which i did i called earning people the manchester by the sea of 1980 i mean i think it very much was um and i think it tackles really interesting things uh in the family setting too where you know the father is like i feel like so the father you're talking about manchester by the sea now or ordinary people no no no. the father ordinary people the father is making up you know he already lost one son Mm -hmm. and he's doing the best he can to keep his other son right whereas mary tyler moore goes through this thing where i mean i can't attest to this is true but i just feel like i don't know how it could, couldn't be now we're only children yes but you know there's a lot of families out there with more children than just one some do and i've mary tyler moore i think clearly had her favorite mm-hmm. and could you blame her it was the first like you know i think all parents if you have multiple kids i think how can you they I just, just don't a, think you can help having a favorite sorry, and, uh, yeah and I don't mean and I don't mean like you know one should have an outstanding favorite but like I think she was affected so much by that like she lost her firstborn and it's like mm-hmm. it's not that Con- Conrad didn't mean anything to her but yeah she was just processing it in a far different way mm-hmm. um and they were coming at it from two different angles and it's really yeah it's a really about love too and how how these two people you know their love for their kids maybe divided the love for each other in, in in a lot of this and they were just going through some shit in a time and place and we don't know what happens to them you know mm-hmm. I, th- I think there's hope for happiness amongst them all rather it's like them getting back together or or what you know working through things out or working through th- uh, working things out individually but it's it's such a touching i don't know i feel like it's such a touching movie on yeah loss and grief and 
you know, I think it's more than just loss and grief that makes Conrad kill himself or try, sorry, try to kill right. himself, attempt to kill himself. It's literally, you know, it's depression and it's mental illness in a way that was not addressed so much back then and in, in, in any regards. Mm-hmm. Um, but, oh, sorry. So I'm, I'm just rambling at this point. Okay. But I wanted to get to what you said about um, about Mary Tyler Moore. And uh, actually, you know, what? I don't remember what you said now. Oh, OK. You know, I, I was, it was about <laughs> the agreeing thing with you. Yeah. Dang. Wow. This is embarrassing. It's OK. People are already mad. They're like, he doesn't like Rady Bowl. He's forgetting his shit. I know. Well, We're a mess. We're a mess. Yeah. You, you continue talking. There was something I had to agree. With. Oh, no. I disagree <laughs> that the characters like her are not portrayed anymore. I think it is more com- like I think it is very common that people live their lives and know, you know, and know of plenty of people that have parents that are distant and not there for them. And I think it is actually so culturally irrelevant. That that's, a, you know, that that's a thing. Like, what's another movie where that's the kind of parents that they are? I'm not saying it's another movie. Oh, okay. I'm saying that I think a lot of people could relate to having a character. Well, I'm, like I think Mary a Tyler lot of people Moore. can relate. I was just saying you don't see that depicted a lot in popular oh, culture. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. No, I, I apologize. I mean, you do see it in some things, certainly. I mean, you got Precious. You got you got even, like, Mean Girls. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> What? Her mother, you know, she's just trying to be cool, not really being like a mom type. You got different But she's ways like of obsessed it. with her daughter. Oh, that is true. Okay, that was a really bad example. I just put it pulling on my butt, but I'm sure there are other examples of just I think like, Precious is a terrible example. Because uh, these are very different. Moonlight. You're talking about different socioeconomics, though, as well. This is an affluent white family where the mom does not care about her children, not a poor know, black like, family where the mom does not care How many times do you see that where they have the nannies that take care of them or whatever? You That's know, blah, true, blah. Like, I guess. You do see it often. We don't necessarily pay much attention to it whereas i think it is the forefront of this particular yeah. film because it's the, everything was about image for her yeah whereas like everything was like falling apart underneath it yeah and, but she didn't care if things were falling apart as long as it looked like they weren't which i think obviously speaks to a lot of people i think there's probably a lot of families that feel that way but absolutely um what did other people think of the movie again i w- i loved it i would highly recommend it to anybody but do you so do you think it's relevant to other filmmakers do you think it's inspiring filmmakers at all i don't i mean is there much to look no i don't think there's much to look at as far as like if you were to put this in a, in a film school curriculum right you know what i mean i'm not gonna put this on a watch list like you need to see this movie to understand something but to deny like again raging bull would probably go ahead of that on right. that for sure um but to deny the fact that it's not a great movie and doesn't deserve its place you know at the in the best picture race uh that would be crazy I think no, it's, it's I think it's definitely deserved to be nominated. Now here's another like Robert Redford also run one as a uh, best director. Yeah. Do you I, think this was better directed than Raging Bull? Mm, uh, that's a great question. I think that there are f- more great performances in Ordinary People than there are in Raging Bull, and if that's what I got to say, a director does for the most part, I would have to agree with that. I'm just trying to take a stance and roll with it. You know what okay. I mean? Because I really do believe that if the performance is like a director's main job is not to be visual. Okay. It's to get through a story and get the best performances out of your actors possible. And that just goes back to theater, right? Sure. Um, you obviously in, put in your artistic sensibilities. You know, you do have a say in a lot of things. Uh, I think Raging Bull, I think Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro are fantastic. I think it does do a lot of cool things. But, like, everybody is really good in Ordinary People. 
and I think the movie flows really well. Again, not the best edited movie. I don't, I don't want to say that, but I think mm-hmm. the movie flows really well and tells a very essential, dramatic story, and he gets what he needs to out of the actors to sell it, including Timothy Hutton, which at first I was like, I don't know about this guy, but really sold it. Oh, he me. was amazing. He was great. And, you know, and that's how I'll just say that to defend that choice. Um, obviously, I don't think Robert Redford is a better director than Martin Scorsese. Right. Like I was saying, I was writing auteur theory papers about Martin yeah. Scorsese. And yeah, I don't think yeah. anyone could write a paper like that about Robert Redford. And I love Robert Redford um, sure. as an actor and as a director. But, um, you know, he's not Martin Scorsese, no, though. And yeah, but, I mean, but film to film, like film to film, mm-hmm. I would say that. That was Robert De Niro's. Or, damn it! That was Robert Redford's year for uh, directing. And I think um, this is only our first episode, but I think as we go through, there is definitely a, a habit of actors turned directors sure. winning because the way that the guilds work within the voting academy, actors make up the largest portion of people voting. Sure. So I think a lot of times, and Robert Redford, I think, is a very a much loved person in hollywood honestly do you know what i mean like i think that people (laughs) really like him um clearly they don't like martin scorsese which we'll get to in future episodes as well (laughs) but um (laughs) but oh yeah i can't wait to discuss that more for sure so um what other people thought the rotten tomatoes audience score for ordinary people is 88 percent okay it is not ranked on any american film institute list okay not Um, no memorable lines that doesn't fit weird categories you know what i mean i I understand if i I mean list but i'm trying to think they did like best like stars but i don't think any of the people in that would have been in there either no, like robert really. redford probably was but <laughs> you know, well none of them are really you know like none of those people are known for being handsome <laughs> or beautiful and really any in, in much regard like they're not typical gra- well, you know, actor like that was a weird casting choice it really was you had an unknown you had donald sutherland who's like good but he's not like he's nothing he's nothing great to look at in a magazine <laughs> and then you have aging Mary Tyler Moore. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Yeah, she was beloved and she's still beloved, I'm sure. But like, it yes. was honestly very strange casting. There was no, you know, straight up beauties or straight, just, just to put a, just to put a hot actor in your movie. And I don't mean yeah. hot, like look, but like, you know, just like, right, a, like a fire buzz. actor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it was really great casting. A, a roll for the dice for Robert Redford, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I think this was the first movie he directed too, I think. So that sounds right. Yeah. Because I think, yeah, and there there also is kind of a habit of the Academy of awarding first-time directors, first-time actors. First, you with, like, Timothy sure. Hutton won. This was his first film, you know. Yeah. They do like to do that, too. But, um, yeah, and so um, Box Office, it made $54.8 million, so did, sure did it well. cost that much, yeah. Yeah, no, I can't imagine then that movie cost that much to make. Um, So those were the, the nominees and the winner. Um. So here's the question. Did they get it right? I guess you would say that they did. I feel like, yes, that is correct. I would say they did that year. Um, I mean, for all the nominees, like, again, I wouldn't include Tess on the list. I don't exactly know what I would replace it with. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but, <laughs> I mean, I do think I do feel that they I oh. do feel that they got that right as far as the best picture is concerned. That being said, in the t- like, as far as cinema history goes, I do understand what is probably your choice. Yes. Raging Bull. Raging Bull is my choice. I think that um, it definitely, I think it was the best picture of those five and of the year and of maybe the decade. Um, And I definitely, even if you didn't like Raging Bull for whatever reason, I think that Martin Scorsese should have won an Oscar for directing it. I think it's a very well directed movie. I think it's stunningly beautiful. 
and well acted and well edited obviously but it won for that fyi by the way tess won for best cinematography yeah no yeah and okay she, you know i i i get it i think that drayton bull should have won but i mean not what when you I just know? choose to shoot in black and white because of a nose you know <laughs> <laughs> but the, i mean that opening sequence with the credits where he's just boxing yeah, in slow oh, motion gorgeous. yeah i feel like that is probably the thing you could probably argue like one of the things you can argue the most mm-hmm. out of what the, that year's oscars got wrong in and my the, personal the opinion yeah. shot where he's like on the ropes and sugar Ray robinson is like coming at him again like when yeah. he's just like taking that beating and there's all that smoke from people smoking like yeah that is a that is just such a compelling shot yeah no, I absolutely agree. Like, I'm going to say cinematography should have won for sure that year. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. Do you want to rank them or do you just want to say that Ordinary People was your favorite? I feel like the, the with the way the passion I talked about yeah. those, you know, I think it's kind of obvious. Like, I mean, if I had to put, honestly, like a number on it, like from five to one, it'd be Tess, Elephant Man, Raging Bull, Cold Myers Daughter. You don't even put Raging Bull second? No. Just as far like as like my be no, problem. those are my personal favorites. Okay. Is that what I'm ranking? I'm sorry. Is that what I'm ranking? My personal choices. The best. The one I guess is your personal choice. Yeah, I would Ugh. say as far as like, that's probably how it go in like rewatch value as well. Yeah. Okay. I mean, mine would be Tess, Elephant Man, Coal Miner's Daughter, Ordinary sure, People, sure. and Raging Bull. Yeah, and I understand. I do understand that. Uh, again, you just. I mean, you can hate me. You can love me. You're, you're probably going to love me at the end of the day. I mean, I don't know. This is really <laughs> just putting a strain on our relationship now. Like when we watched Breaking Bad. Again, like I understand Raging Bull. I'm just, I'm saying as far as like I enjoy Coal Miner's Daughter more than Raging Bull. All right. Well, those were the nominees, but here are some other notable films that came out that year that did not get nominated for Best Picture. The Shining. Meh. Okay, I'm really, really going to turn like a lot of people off and I'm sorry. I'm not like this. Like I just don't particularly care that much for the shining. I love Kubrick. I don't think the shining is nearly his best movie. What? You're just saying crazy things to me. All right. Um, you know, I don't care for the shining. I thought you loved the shining. We watched a documentary. Why would we watch a documentary about a movie you didn't even like? I thought it was interesting. I love behind the scenes <laughs> documentaries like that. I mean, the shining is fine. I mean, it's a great movie, though. And if you're talking about movies that are so culturally relevant, I think The Shining. Sure. I would absolutely agree with that. And I think there is a lot to take away from The Shining. I'm sorry. I was responding to the fact, should it have been nominated for Best Picture? You don't think it should have? Maybe. Oh, wait. Yeah. Maybe over Tess. Yes. Okay. Sorry. You're right. No, you're right. You're right. I'm if just, I was replacing things, I would replace, for sure play, replace Tess with The Shining. Okay. I will, I will agree with that. I just don't think it's Kubrick's best movie. That's really. No, I was but coming you're not. from the director shot, I guess. I know. I'm. You can't me. base I, it on his whole work. You have listen, to base it on the movies that came out in 1980. Episode. I'm just getting used to this. Okay? All right. All right. <laughs> um, so, one of the movies that came out were Caddyshack, Cruising. Oh, again, we could replace Tess. No, sorry. Go ahead. Cruising? Uh, cruising. Never seen that. I love Freaking. Friday the 13th. And a little movie oh, yeah. called Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Empire Strikes Back. I mean, I would personally probably put it above all those movies on my list. <laughs> That's um, the one you would rewatch the yeah. most. <laughs> but do I, you know, in, in reference to this podcast, do I think it was supposed to be a Best Picture nominee? Obviously, it could have replaced Tess. Uh, but You I think Empire Strikes Back is a better movie than Tess? Yeah. Are you joking? <laughs> like, I think a If lot we're talking about culturally Caddy relevant Shack in 2017, I would say Empire Strikes Back is, is the, the best. Yeah, 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 like, yeah, for sure. Um but again, I think mostly we're we're discussing best picture nomination. Best picture, and I I think The Shining 
I would put it above Tess. I would put it above Elephant Man. That's and pro- maybe even above Coal Miner's Daughter, honestly. honestly. very fair. Well, I mean, actually, yeah, I have to agree with you on that aspect as far as cultural rele- relevance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of times, the I mean, the Academy Awards just do not respect genre movies. No. They never very, have. That is very true. And so, I mean, we'll see when we go through even like... Um, Unless it's coming war. Up, Unless that genre yeah. is Unless war it's a or warp. Western. It's like, but if it's sci-fi, if it's fantasy, if no, it's they don't, horror, they don't really care. they're I mean, not into it. It's been it. a shift to that lately, but it's just because the spectacle. Not really. No, I'm just saying with like, there was gravity involved. I wouldn't call that sci-fi though. You wouldn't? No. A movie set in space? But it's set in space, but it's not like there's... Um, That's true. There's it's no, realistic there's space. No ex- well, yeah. there was a little bit of craziness in that movie, which I did particularly enjoy. But, yeah. But yeah. I, I wouldn't. Will, but I would say like... Um, sci-fi like, like two thousand one: A Space Odyssey, yeah. or like something like that. No, you're right. It, it does. You go to you go to Mars. You're not getting much love. Although the Golden Globes will give an award to the Martian, so that's the Golden Globes are insane. Then again, that's not even sci-fi. You're right because that's based in reality again. So it's right. It's, it's too much. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. That. And like horror, I think does particularly badly. I mean, even like fantasy, like Lord of the Rings, obviously finally got an Oscar, and like yeah. Um, to me, it felt like I can't think of any other fantasy movies that got nominated, but, (laughs) um, but yeah, I mean, Westerns, you would think will have done, they get nominated more. They don't win that much. Um, but yeah, but like I was saying, horror doesn't do that well, which we'll see later in the season. We talk about Alfred Hitchcock, but great. That was pretty much it for 1980. I mean, he's a little overrated as a director, if you ask. I'm, I am just kidding. I'm just trying. How much can I say at this point to turn off all of our audiences to myself? <laughs> if I hurt this podcast, I just want to apologize. I promise I will be better in the future, but I'm still going to be honest. So, Ugh, I promise, guys, that I will be <laughs> this rational. Might be, this might be just Devin <laughs> in the next episode, depending on. Um, so that was it. That was the first episode. Um. Thank you for listening. You might have noticed that we came in on this episode listening to the winner for best song, Fame, from the movie Fame. Fame. <laughs> but we don't know if that was the best song. And so we're going to we're going to leave you with what we think should have been the best song of 1980. 9 to 5 from 9 to 5. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you had to say it. You could we could have just like ran into the song. That's what I was going to do. But then you were just staring at me so I felt like I should talk. <laughs> no, don't talk. Okay. Um uh i hope you guys enjoyed the show um we definitely look forward to doing this more and figuring you know figuring kind of things out before we go um or as we go sorry so yeah so join us again next week and it's gonna be another bumpy night And I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine